0: Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for October 2019. My name is Mark Freeman and I'm one of the editors at Senses of Cinema. And with me today is my wonderful co-host, Kirsten Stevens, who's a writer, she's an academic, she's a programmer. And I don't know about you, Kirsten, but today I'm feeling like I'm 20 years old all over again. Are you feeling youthful and 20-ish?
1: A little bit, a little bit. At least when I'm remembering back to when this all started 20 years ago. I think I was youthful and 20-ish then.
0: Yeah, I was still old 20 years ago. (laughs) But... We're feeling like we're 20 years old, and that's for a really good reason, because on today's show, we're celebrating the very fine journal of which Kirsten and I are a part, Senses of Cinema, and it is our 20th anniversary. Uh, 20 years since Senses began, and we wanted to spend today celebrating the work that's been done, and the writing that's been really important, and the contribution the journal has made to film discourse across the last 20 years. So, to begin with, Kirsten and I are going to talk about the significance of the journal, Um, and what Senses of Cinema has meant to film discussion and to film culture. And then we're going to mysteriously transport ourselves, Kirsten, to Berlin, um, where our our secret third and fourth chairs, Danny Fairfax and Michelle Carey, my co-editors, are going to be discussing their experiences as editors of Senses and the importance of the film festival uh, to film culture and, in fact, to Senses of Cinema, um, our very own journal. And then we're going to magically come back to Melbourne. My God, the travel. Um, Then Kirsten and I are going to talk about the latest dossier in the most recent issue of Senses of Cinema, which focuses on a reflection on the previous decade. And we're also going to use that as a bit of a springboard to reflect on the changes that have occurred in cinema since Senses got underway back in 1999. And we'll end, as always, with our recommendations for October. And in the bonus, we're going to be discussing our favourite great director's pieces from the past. So we've got a lot of Senses of Cinema for the Senses of Cinema podcast. So I guess now we should get on with the show. In late 1999, Senses of Cinema got its start under the tutelage of editors Bill Masoulis and Fiona Villella, it built from a fairly modest first edition to become one of the most significant and influential journals online. It's been an important outlet for film writers and for film thinkers, and now here we are 20 years later. Kirsten, what do you think Senses of Cinema has contributed? Like, let's narrow it down, but what do you think we've contributed to the world of film over the last two decades?
1: I think probably for me the biggest contribution of Senses of Cinema has been making accessible um a lot of the writing about film, but in a way that doesn't dumb it down, doesn't oversimplify it. So, you know, my first encounter with Senses of Cinema was, I think, the same as a a decent amount of our readership, uh, which was I was a university student and it was set as something I should read by my lecturer, um, learning about film for the first time and being directed to this website that, you know, this was back in around uh, 2003, and so online material was still, we're just coming out of, um, you know, the first iteration of the internet. So a website, even what Censor's website looked like back then, as a p- place where you could go and read really good writing, was still kind of novel. Yeah. Um, and it was accessible. It was interesting and really complex ideas, but... It wasn't, like, the academic writing that I was being fed at the time that just right. was, you know, a wall of words and theory. It was something that got me really passionate about cinema.
0: And I think that's one thing, you know, when you kind of steer a journal, it's one of the, the issues that you're concerned with. Like, what is the readership and what is the spread of stuff that we want to offer? And I think, you know, over the years... Census has really found a nice pocket between something that is accessible and readable, even, as you say, for, like, emerging cinephiles, people who are just, you know, starting to get a sense of what the world of of screen studies can be. Um, And there's enough in our journal that is accessible and easy and, well, not easy, but complex, but um, accessibly written. And then we also do have a kind of academic arm as well where we're also partially peer-reviewed. So if you are looking for a more academic focus for some writing, we offer that as well. And I think what Census has actually managed over that 20 years to do is juggle a a range of different modes of writing. Some of it is academic and peer-reviewed. Some of it is um, kind of perhaps more journalistic and really accessible. Some of it is dealing with contemporary cinema in a really interesting and intriguing and complex new way. Some of it is retrospective and bring to light, maybe some filmmakers or um, experts that maybe we haven't covered. Um, And then you start thinking, you know, you, you mentioned that 20 years ago, Oh God, you were still at university. Um, (laughs) uh, And you know, that, Something like our great director's pieces that we're going to talk about in more detail in the bonus have actually become a really significant part of the the, uh, site for students who are, you know, starting to grapple with what does a director mean? What does a director's work involve? And those are literally some of our most popular and um, most well-read pieces on the journal. Students go there early on as a kind of intro to a particular filmmaker – Um, So I think that we've covered a whole range of really interesting writing for a whole range of um, really different audiences.
1: And I think certainly as someone coming from Australia where it would take me a few more years um, to really discover the wealth of uh, film magazines. Uh, And it was really the first time that I travelled to America where I went into a magazine store or bookshop and there was like more than two film magazines up on the wall. It was incredible. But prior to that, in Australia to try and track down some of those things like Cineast or uh, Film Comment or uh, even Sight and Sound could be really difficult. You weren't going to find it in your local news agency. Um, You had to go to specialty suppliers. It was always air freighted in and costing a fortune. Absolutely. So to get up-to-date, insightful, really interesting commentary about what was screening around the world, because Australia was still you know, kind of the last to know yeah. um, in terms of a lot of films reaching us. So this it really was um, the way to access the world of cinema.
0: Yeah. The, the other thing that I'm really pleased that Senses has built over a period of time is just this really fantastic stable of writers that increasingly it's just become this community of writers and we accept new members all the time, right? So, you know, we've got... You know, when I think some of the writers that I've dealt with really consistently over time, I mean, just really wonderful writers like Willa Winston-Dixon, who I just friggin' adore that dude. He's a brilliant writer. Jeremy Carr is another one who's amazing. Tara Judah. You know, these great writers who are producing terrific work. And they've been with us over a really extended period of time and producing fantastic work. But we also foster emerging writers as well. So, I mean, people would be aware that Census does have a section that is um, what we call the C- Tech annotations. In Melbourne, we have a, a Cinematech that is run um, by ex, you know, our, our ex-host, uh, Eloise Ross, uh, is part of that uh, that whole system to, to keep that Cinematech running. And one of the things that we offer for people in Melbourne coming to Cinematech is, you know, some some writing on the things that are screening. So we've had a bit of a relationship with Cinematech for you know many years now, and those annotations, which are shorter pieces of writing that are focusing on a specific film, are a fantastic training ground for a lot of writers. Um, also, you know, some of our established writers also just say, "I really love this film, and I want to dip back into exploring what's going on in this particular film." Uh, and so, what we've Established is this wonderful training ground for emerging writers and places where established writers can still dip in and out as they wish and, and write on the films that they love.
1: And I think that training ground, I mean, far shorter, far briefer than even the cinematic um, annotations is the World Poll um, and the avenue that that often invites new writers in to the journal, uh, getting them to think about, you know, what, it, what has resonated over the past year and we're yeah. coming up to... Uh, we <laughs> are Kirsten.
0: Thank you for raising that because I might be the bunny who's about to start like getting into the driver's seat and start steering that. Um, there will be an announcement uh, probably in the next month or so that I'll, I'll let people know that the the world poll is, of course, happening again, and we'll probably publish in around about kind of mid uh, mid January. Um, but yeah, the world poll, yeah, you know, especially I've really come to understand that once I, I took it over a couple of years ago from Michelle. Um, you know, that is such an incredible project and just gets people from all around the world from a whole range of, um, areas of film. So it's not just like I am a journalist or I am an academic. It's like, I curate this museum. You know, I am a programmer. I do all of this other stuff as well as people who just like films. So the, the attraction and the, the, awesomeness, I think, of the World Poll is that it brings people who maybe wouldn't normally publish anywhere else. They wouldn't think that they would be, you know, qualified. It's not appropriate for them to approach some academic journal and write something. It's the place where we just Bring in new writers. They write up a world poll. They get really into writing that thing. The work is good, and then they say, "You know what? Maybe I can take on an annotation." And so it, it is a wonderful way to to bring in just the, the breadth of writing from across the world um, to celebrate the the world of film. It's something I think that we've done incredibly well.
1: I think that's it. I think you know if we're talking about what has been the impact of sensitive of Cinema across its twenty years. It has been that celebration of the love of film. Um, That is absolutely what I associate with this journal. And every time you read a new issue, a new dossier, um, even festival reports, as uh, Danny and Michelle are going to talk about in a little bit, um, it's really just this passion around cinema and all of its facets. You know, and that passion sometimes is loving a film, sometimes is hating a film, but it's the fact that this is where those conversations happen, and they're happening In a far more complex way than I think they necessarily happen nowadays, um, in a lot of film criticism. That you know, we we saw it with the the newspaper and the five star review that started to take up less and less and less room within print newspapers, and it's now, you know, for whatever you might value find in um, film Twitter. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's only so much you're going to be able to really express in those kind of moments. So I think there's there's a need for uh, taking the time and taking the space yep. to invest into talking about this passion around cinema and what it kind of stirs up.
0: And and the the other contribution I think to just basic cinephilia, and, and you know, I can speak from my own experience, is you know, we've got a range of editors, we've got a range of writers, everybody has their own interest. And we all love film, but we also only know the films that we already know, you know, so we all have our pockets of of interest. And, you know, I can't cover everything. I'm not going to live to 9,000 years old to be able to see all of the things. And the great thing about Senses is I keep coming up against things that I've never heard of, like, oh, I've never heard of that filmmaker. Now there's a dossier on them. There are, you know, eight, nine, ten articles where I can just dive in and, and start to make sense of this pocket of cinema that I've had no clue about. So, no matter how deep you are into cinephilia, there's always a kind of emergent thing that you don't know about. And Census, has, I think, has been great at just kind of extending people's understanding of what film is. I think
1: this is also where just the breadth of the archive that is up on the website. Uh, You know, it's over four and a half thousand articles that are up there. Um, It's incredible. Uh, And so it is that thing of you can't see everything. And depending on when you're coming through, we were talking about, you know, emerging cinephiles coming through and discovering content, you know, having that 20 years to go back and go, okay, so what were the things that people were passionate about and writing about and rediscovering? 20 years ago, yeah. um, which, you know, I came in, even though it was only a few years after the start of um, Census when I first discovered it, there's still so much in there that I was utterly unaware of. And even now that I teach film, there's so much of film history that I'm utterly unaware of. And Census is just an amazing resource to be able to dive in and rediscover that that
0: history. 100%. You know, uh, and I think that, you know, is this a little bit self-congratulatory? But hey, look—it's our anniversary, so screw it. Like we're going to—it's our we're party. Awesome. We can gloat if we want that's, to. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I think that *Senses* really has found um, a really tremendously influential spot in the in the film um, landscape, in terms of kind of generating this discussion, opening up new things, having new takes on old things as well, which I think is really um, really important to be able to sort of have a multifaceted approach to film discourse. And, and, you know, we're very, very proud of that. It is true. I mean, you mentioned our archive. We have got, and it's maybe worth chipping in here, like our website is like at the point where it's about to explode um, kind of pixels or, something digital out the sides because we do have 20 years worth of archive and, and that website's starting to get a bit creaky um, and we are in the, the need of a bit of an upgrade. So we, we are looking for ways to generate some funds to maybe get ourselves a, a website that's going to be able to handle uh, the incredible archive that we've got. So um, Kristen, do you want to?
1: We do. We have a couple of um, fundraising campaigns on at the moment uh, where we're seeking a little bit of uh, support from our supporters um, to help us renovate the website and keep it going for another 20 years, hopefully. Um, so, we've got a GoFundMe campaign that's running at the moment. Um, it's called Save Our Senses of Cinema Save Our Site. Um, SOS Uh, so you can um, find us through GoFundMe Um, and for those of our listeners in Australia we also have um, an Australian Cultural Fund uh, campaign running Um, if you're an Australian both the donations to both our Cultural Fund and our GoFundMe are tax deductible so you know you want to come and help us out very nice
0: and of course you could become a patron you'll get some little bonuses from the podcast and a few other goodies that we've got lined up for you so I mean, it's been 20 years and we've done amazing work. But unfortunately, technology has advanced in 20 years, Kirsten. And I don't know whether you noticed that. Um, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. And our website is just, it, it's starting to, it's time for a renovation. I it need, is. I think we need an extension. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we will need some funds to try and make sure that the website can sustain the archive that we've got up online. So any help would be greatly appreciated.
1: So you can head to our social media um, to find out details about our uh, crowdfunding campaigns and, of course, about our Patreon.
0: I think we've got an Instagram now.
1: Yes, we do have an Instagram, and it is uh, The Senses of Cinema.
0: So that's The Senses of Cinema.
1: It is. So Instagram.com slash The Senses of Cinema. Uh, Head over there and you can check out some wonderful images that relate to some of the articles from our issue 92. Um, And drop us a line and let us know what you think about how we're doing and what the impact of the journal has been for you. Film festivals are vital spaces for cinema. It is at these events and through their programs that the great majority of the world's films make their way before audiences. Beyond the limited space of commercial theatrical releases, film festivals create spaces for films that offer exploration of what cinema can offer as an art rather than just an industry. Since its early issues, uh, Senses of Cinema has provided an important space for the consideration of film festivals and the impact that they have on cinema at large. Each with their own flavour and insight year to year, the festival reviews help to bring the world of cinema as it unfolds each calendar year into view. To talk about the impact of these festival reports, we're reaching out to Berlin um, and Senses of Cinema editors Michelle Carey and Daniel Fairfax.
2: All right, I'm Daniel Fairfax. I'm one of the editors at Senses of Cinema and I'm sitting here with a fellow editor from Senses, Michelle Carey. Uh, Michelle Carey is primarily responsible for the festival reports section of Senses. One of the real highlights of every issue are the... uh, really uh, up-to-date reports on the state of contemporary cinema in uh, all any number of the world's film festivals, from Cannes right down to a vast array of uh, international film festivals. Uh, and Michelle also has the distinction of being the longest-serving editor at Senses of Cinema. Uh, she's been with Senses in various capacities for 18 years now, so for the vast majority of the history of the journal, and she's been the festival's editor since uh, when exactly, Michelle?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Probably, I mean, I would say most most of that time, most of that time. I guess what I want to say about the festival section is um, it's two things. It's sort of a look at festivals and festival culture, which is obviously a really big thing, not only in film scholarship, but just in in the film industry and, and film culture, of course. But um, it's also a really great way to get a lot of discussion around contemporary, brand new films um, into the journal, um, because I think a lot of our feature sections are often taken up with um, a lot of uh, scholarship around older films. Not always, but I, I also see the festival section as a really great way to get um, a lot of more newer films discussed and reviewed.
2: Yeah, um, and that is really one of the essential elements of the Festival Reports section. Uh, but I, I guess I wanted to go back to your beginnings at Sensors, Michelle, and how you actually came across what was then a very young uh, journal just beginning to make its stamp uh, on the film world. So how did you actually come to join Sensors and uh, and become an editor?
3: Um yeah, to be honest, I was living interstate, um, not in Melbourne, where Census was based at that point, as Fiona Vallela and um, Bill Masoulis were the co-editors. Um, and I moved to Melbourne very suddenly, just after Christmas in 2001, and had reached out to Bill, um, I think I might have even met him at the Melbourne Film Festival, and um, we got on really well. And... reached out and just said you know i really loved senses of cinema it was one of the reasons i think that made me decide that melbourne would be the place i'd move to because it just seemed to have a very rich um film culture and i just sort of started helping bill out with (laughs) with things i think is i was his assistant uh which is cute because it was all volunteer and then um yeah, just kind of got involved with the, the journal generally for, for a year or two and uh, I think Fiona Vallela was editing the film festivals at the time and she stopped being involved with Senses um, a couple of years later and I, I moved to take on the film festival section, which is funny because I think at the time I'd never been to an international film festival. I'd only been to, to Melbourne, Sydney, um, possibly Adelaide and I went to my first film festival in 2005, October. It was the Viennale, um, which I think I actually wrote on. I did my first film festival report from my first international film festival. Um, yeah, and it sort of um, went on from there. I, I was thinking, I was trying to remember how many festivals I've since travelled to, and um, I've lost count, but I should do that sometime
2: yes now of course uh you've also uh, during that time you're also establishing yourself within the film festival world in another sense as a programmer uh and then eventually for seven or eight years as a as the director of the melbourne international Film Festival uh up until last year uh so you have a kind of a picture of the festival world from two points of view let's say from uh the 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 Actual nitty gritty tasks of organising a film festival, and then from this, let's say, more distance view of the critic, the writer, uh, the 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 viewer in the end, the spectator uh, watching these films. Uh, how do you how have you negotiated those two roles and those two different perspectives on film festivals?
3: Um, well, I guess that was one of the reasons why I want to continue doing uh, festival reports coverage um, after I joined MIF um, because. I mean, they they inform each other. You know, I loved reading uh, about new films at at new film festivals with world premieres such as, you know, Cannes, Sundance, um, also a lot of the smaller, shall we call them, uh, lesser-known festivals, the more regional festivals was a really great way to discover new films. So, you know, that's also a form of programming. Um, You know, I really do think... um, you know, criticism can be a form of programming and, and, and vice versa. So they really worked well together. I mean, my time when I when when I was at Mirfai, I didn't edit the Australian Film Festival. Someone else would do that. So I was mainly focusing on international, but um, it really worked well. And, you know, it's interesting. It's not just the films. It's sort of this growth of film festival culture over the years. It's um, really exploded. I mean, we see it in academia now. There's so many masters of film culture and and um, cinema management and film festival curation, that kind of thing. So uh, it's really exploded. And I remember in the early days, you know, we'd have a couple of festivals each issue and now I'm just inundated. I have to say no to so many festival report um, proposals because there are just so many people travelling to film festivals and wanting to write on them. So I'm at the moment thinking about maybe... Um, how, how we can sort of consolidate all these sort of factors swirling around around film festival culture and um, maybe do a few new things within this section. But maybe I won't say too much on that yet.
2: Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating. Uh, but that also, I guess, um, leads us to another question, which is certainly one of the big tendencies in film festival cultures in the last, say, decade and a half and you've been involved has been just the sheer inflation in the number of film festivals uh have there been any other tendencies or trends or phenomena that you've noticed uh in your time as a as a festival editor and a festival programmer
3: i mean in terms of festival coverage it's really interesting going back through our 90-something issues and seeing patterns in the very early days, uh, uh, the first festival report appeared in *Census Cinema in 2000 in Issue 4. It was by Bill Masoulis, which is awesome, and it was on Eastern Connection, which is one of these very um, local, uh, shall we call them, national cinema festivals held in a given city, and, and you still have a lot of those. Um, we don't do so much of that kind of coverage anymore. We sort of focus more on um, bigger... Um, more curated festival, shall we say. Um, so there's probably not as much coverage in that. I mean, in the early days, the, the particular festivals that kept reoccurring, um, Thessaloniki was a really big one in the early days, Istanbul, um, Hong Kong, and um, I think the types of festivals people are going to, like in terms of so just people from australia going to probably change bologna seems to be a huge festival for australians uh cinephiles and um obviously the big ones you know Cannes, berlin venice et cetera. but um i guess what i've become more interested in over the years are these sort of smaller festivals ar- around the world um that are really interesting curatorially like punto de Vista and um in Spain and um yeah, a few things like that. Asian Asian festival coverage we've always had a lot. And I think this is what sort of differentiates us from um other film magazines or journals that might do, you know, the f- festival reports on the, the big festivals such as Cannes, Berlin, etc., which are important. But um I'm always really interested to hear about some smaller Festivals, and it it also allows the writers to take a little bit more of a literary, almost not quite, sort of travel, travel, uh, travelogue style of writing, which I really like. Just makes it a little bit more literary.
2: Yeah, no, that's uh, it's great that you bring that up because I did also want to talk about, uh, I guess, the art of writing a festival report, Mm. and you, as having as someone who's edited so many reports, read so many uh, accounts of festivals uh if there is let's say a budding young writer looking to to cover a festival what would you suggest to them or recommend to them as being like the qualities that you look for uh, in a festival report
3: yeah um it's interesting cuz i think festival reports is can be seen and can be actually a really ge- a great sort of um gateway into film writing it's not as intimidating cuz you can sort of break down the film criticism and, and look at a number of different films. So it's, it's certainly a great format for beginners to, to start with. What I do ask though is um, uh, don't be too wide-eyed, you know, when you, when you write, like have some authority, um, look at how festivals function and it can be so exciting being there. And I think that's part of why we love festivals and what makes them unique but um i guess also just step back a little bit and sort of look at you know what this festival's trying to do and does it succeed not necessarily to be critical as such but i guess what i'm looking for in writers is um an authoritative voice so it can't just be anyone just going to a festival and saying oh this is so great it was so much fun and you know aren't audiences amazing um you know, I mean, maybe we've published a few like that over the years. I've probably written a few like that when I was younger, but I guess I'm I'm looking more for an authoritative voice as we move forward. Right. So Daniel, I'm going to ask you some questions. Um. Okay. You have been involved with census for how many years now?
2: Uh. Well, I first started writing for census. Actually, strange enough, I wrote a single article in I think 2005, and then on Trufove strange enough and then didn't write anything for another four years and then finally in 2009 I I took up the cudgel again uh started writing um wrote a great director's profile on Stravier which is an article I'm still proud of and then uh you actually encouraged me to write festival reports uh and so that is actually something I do as well uh on at least two or three times a year uh I cover Khan every year um and then various other festivals over Berlin, Rotterdam, Vienna. Mm. Um,
3: And do you find, I mean, you write, you know, you're also a scholar yourself, so you do a lot of in-depth, high-level film writing. I mean, how does the festival report format compare? Do you you find it less intimidating, more intimidating? I, I know you have an editor that's always giving you, like terribly strict deadlines that you must reach.
2: Unlike an academia where they just... <laughs> no, um, it's more fun to write festival reports, mm-hmm. I think, than to write more academically inclined articles. Uh, you have the opportunity to respond very immediately to a film uh, and just really just start thinking before... Even during the moment when the response to a film is still being formed and shaped, uh, you're, you're already writing about it and that can be incredibly exhilarating that you're part of that conversation um that said uh you know sometimes i've noticed that i can be maybe a bit too uh let's say peremptory with a film and and you know kind of encapsulated in a few lines uh after having just seen it um once and then you know in the midst of a film program that could have a festival program that could have 40 or 50 films that i've seen in it um And some films require a bit more thought and require a bit more just letting the film sit with you and kind of work their way through you uh, and then you can often have a very different response to it. And I find that sometimes if I will rewatch a film six months later or a year later, I have a very different uh reaction to it, but my initial response is what's being published uh on censors um, yeah,
3: and I think that's I, I yeah, I totally get that, but I think you know. That's part of a festival reports charm as well, is that it's very immediate, a little bit scrappy maybe. I want to ask you, you yeah. actually have just come back from Pingyao in Chinese, in China, Pingyao Film Festival. How was that?
2: Yeah, that was really fascinating. That was uh, my first Asian film festival that I've that I've uh, covered. I mean, hasn't yet been written on, so we're getting a sneak preview of what I'm going to say, I guess. Um, and my first time actually in China as well, so very fascinating. Pingyao is this ancient town, about 3,000 years old, that's perfectly preserved in the interior of China. Still inhabited and lived in. Uh, and, uh, Zhang Zhangke actually decided that this was a place where he wanted to establish a film festival, which he did so three years ago. He, he's uh,
3: from that region. He's so from
2: the area, exactly. So not quite from Pingyao, mm-hmm. but from nearby, um and uh figured that this was a, a opportune place to establish a film festival since it's, it's uh he brought marco mueller on board as festival director and i think both of them have a very clear cinephilic orientation mm-hmm. uh for the festival uh or idea for what the festival should be and um which differentiates it from a lot of the other chinese film festivals which are uh, much more like let's say red carpet and celebrity focused. Mm-hmm. This is a festival where the films really take precedence and it was a really excellent opportunity to, particularly to gain an insight into young Chinese cinema. Uh, A lot of films which otherwise maybe wouldn't make it um, internationally, but are showing what's happening in Chinese cinema right now, particularly on the kind of, more of the margins of the film industry. Uh, And it was an amazing opportunity to do so in this totally alien cultural environment, which is a lot of the time what happens with film festival reporting? You go into the city, maybe you've been there before, maybe you haven't, you're there for a couple of weeks, you're experiencing films uh, at the same time as you're experiencing the city. Uh, and in some ways that become, become a very intense experience. There's actually a line from an Edward Yang film, Yi Yi, uh, where one of the characters says, uh, if you watch cinema, you get three times the amount of life that you would otherwise get because you get your own life, and then you get this double life of the cinema. Uh, and in a way, going to a city for a where's film the, where's festival...
3: Where's the third life?
2: Well, like, cinema is already double, like, oh, the original course, life. Yeah. And then you have your own life as well, so it's three <laughs> times the life. Uh, and I feel the same way when you go to a city for a festival, you're experiencing yeah. three times the city, or three times the amount of uh kind of sensory input that you would otherwise be getting people
3: and meeting locals and other people going to festivals it's um yeah it's a really as you say like intense amazing addictive experience (laughs) going to festivals um yeah fantastic yeah
2: maybe you should leave it on that note
3: yeah So we'll just finish up by saying happy birthday, Senses of Cinema. We (laughs) love you. Happy 20th birthday. Happy 20th. And here's to another 20 20 plus years.
2: And Michelle will still be festival.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks a lot. See ya. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the cost of keeping sensitive cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you were to subscribe to the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast, so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Census Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Census, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work that they do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Census Cinema, Visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring you the journal throughout your film year.
0: The dossier in our latest issue poses the question, what has shaped cinema over the decade of the 2010s? The response has been rich and varied and fascinating. It's a dossier we're really proud of. And out of that dossier emerges a few trends that are really worth discussing. And since this is also a 20th year anniversary for Censors, Kirsten and I thought we might not just reflect on the last decade, but also the last two decades of film. So if this isn't a personal question, Kirsten, where were you 20 years ago in your world of cinephilia?
1: Ah, uh, my world of cinephilia 20 years ago was very nascent stages. Um, I think I was obsessing over 10 things I hate about you. Um, but I was a teenage girl, so, um, that and Scream, I think, um, was very much my life and trying to watch things like, um, Dazed and Confused, which was still kind of being kept from me by my parents and older brothers, um, who deemed me too young to be watching it, um... But no, uh, really, I was very much caught up with film 20 years ago without really knowing that there was a world out there where you could, you know, look into it professionally and um, spend your time watching it. And it wasn't just, you know, a waste of time. Um, And I was, I I loved where cinema was at in the the late 90s. How about you, Mark?
0: See, it's weird that you say that because 20 years ago, I was kind of at the same point, but I'd already had a career for a while as a, as a teacher and had always been the film person. But when I went off to university, there wasn't really any cinema studies that didn't really exist, at least where I went. Um, and so I didn't know that you could do it. So I did other stuff and I did books and literature and all that sort of stuff. And then got to the point, uh, where I, you know, 20 years ago thought, oh, there's this whole thing where you can study film. And I'd been doing, you know, you do the reading and you do the watching and stuff in an informal way. And I actually started to plan another career just because I was sick of the one I was in and started, just went back to university and did a master's and so did a a post-grad degree in film. And then that's where I was. 1999 was me saying I've had enough of teaching you know 16 year olds nothing against being 16 but like if you're going to put me in a room with 50 of them like i might go mad now um and that was when i just transitioned into uh, postgraduate study and taking film more seriously so 20 years ago was a real change for me too it was like oh you can actually study this thing um and you know again coincidentally census was kind of part of that so You know, census started in 1999. That was essentially the point where I gave up my old job, started study, and as you've already mentioned, like it's the point where you're like, oh, like there's this online journal thing that I can read stuff. I actually even started writing for for census right from the very, or very, very early on anyway. Um, So census was actually part of my world 20 years ago.
1: So in that 20 years since we both, I guess, kind of woke up to the wonders of film is something more than just what's on the television or on the cinema screen, something that, you know, can sustain a passion and a curiosity and critical engagement. What do you think has been the defining shifts
0: in that time? I mean, this is one of the things that emerged, I mean, out of the dossier that we've just done, which I think is super interesting. Um, We did just sort of open it up to people and say, like, what do you think defined the last 10 years? And and what came out of that was this really, uh, in many ways, really varied, but also quite similar. And so when I think back across the 20 years, not just the last 10 years, but the last 20, I mean, I think a lot of the changes really are quite recent. Um, you know, certainly when I, you know, 20 years ago, when I started study, a lot of it was about sort of slacker cinema and, you know, the emerging kind of independent cinema. And now that seems really old and kind of it's had its time. You know, that, and this is maybe as much about generational change as it is about cinematic change. But a lot of that independent cinema at that time was, we don't want to be a market. We hate being targeted for things. I'm not going to be part of your advertising. And, you know, that's now been replaced by a generation that's like, I'm on Instagram and now I'm a thing. Um, and so it's now actually actually, advertising is part of, is so central to our understanding of cinema now. So now it's franchising. Now it's like, did you like this thing? You bought this product before? Now buy the sequel to the product. Um, and there are a range of um, articles in our uh, dossier from the most recent issue that are looking at the role of franchising and what that has meant um, to make sense of a contemporary film moment, which I think is really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean... My The things that were really making me passionate around film in the late 90s, and it was possibly the early 2000s by the time I was discovering a lot of this, um, you know, as I sort of embraced my status as a film student. Um, but there was a kind of anarchy in cinema and a really kind of anti-establishment line that went through a lot of that. And a lot of the sci-fi cinema and a lot of the independent cinema, um, even though a lot of that... Um, indie wood cinema, even a, through the '90s, was really subsidiaries of major yeah. um, studios and all the rest of it. There was a real kind of sense of individualism, of doing your own thing, of not being part of the system. And I feel like that has really shifted. Um, you know, being independent doesn't mean the same thing now that I think it was meaning yeah. back in the '90s.
0: Hundred percent. And and even if you start, I mean to be a little topical I mean one of the things that's emerged you know just in the, the kind of film news I suppose lately has been this thing about you know Scorsese saying oh I don't like Marvel films and people who like Marvel films saying, oh you know, you're an idiot shut up you old man Um, and and what I think emerges out of that is, is two different visions of what film is and you know for what it, for what it's worth like I'm all about all cinema so I don't, I don't give a toss I mean I'm not a huge you know superhero fan, and yet there are superhero films that I think are fantastic. So, like, what does that mean in the end? Um, But I think that we're looking at that generational shift of a perception of cinema, one that says this is what cinema is now, right? We are now a kind of franchise, um, big, grand experience of cinema. Uh, And that's now almost a a kind of indirect opposition to maybe a Scorsese led thing that is I need to tell this small story and tell it in a really intimate way. And so the difference between the kind of intimate approach to um, understanding character and and, um, story or whatever or culture is now kind of transferred into a CGI blockbuster moment. They're both cinema. They're just a different perception of how we, I don't know, make sense of what film can be.
1: And I think you, you mentioned technology and how that's changed significantly over 20 years um I I still remember having you know my first mobile phone at the in the late 90s and you had one line of text that you could have on the screen to now where it's you know you can watch an entire film on your phone not that I understand why you'd want to um (laughs) but I think I think part of that generational gap perhaps um that generational sensibility, because I don't know that all of the people who are in Scorsese's camp are Scorsese's age. Yeah. I think there is a, a kind of sensibility around whether or not a film is a film and a discrete, you know, one and a half to now three, 10, 14 hour. Um,
0: <laughs> 22 film. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, you know, uh, thinking about what is film, this discrete. Storytelling object, or is it like the Marvel and the franchise cinema, which exists across multiple platforms and uh, multiple media, um, so that you're constantly interacting with the story world in a whole range of different ways? And I think the rise of technology means that you can tell stories in different ways, and it is causing a lot of anxiety for people around. Okay, but where is cinema in this? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, certainly the rise of streaming services, which is also covered in the dossier, um, and the way that we watch films and interact with content, this word content, um, you know, it it does kind of obscure exactly what is a movie uh, because, you know, film, the number of um, directors working with film is diminishing. Um, I, I think it complicates things, but well, there's part of me that goes, oh, we can't lose that form of storytelling that is cinema. Um, I don't want to see that disappear. There's also something wonderful in the messiness of all the different ways you can think about aye, cinema aye, aye. now.
0: And, you know, one of the other things, and again, you know, as you've alluded to, this came out in the dossier, but when you think about how differently we watch now and who we watch with and what that experience is to watch, like that has completely transformed. I mean, I'm old enough to kind of remember when, you know, you couldn't tape things off the TV or, you know, that was, oh my God, how do we get a video recorder? And, you know, the idea of having a DVD so that you could watch it over and over again, my God, the incredible moment when you realized you could have a kind of home theater. And now we're at the point where like, oh, I'll flick through the four different subscription services that I have. I will take any number of, Know, options that I can, can access and watch whatever I want, which is both an incredible benefit, I think, that the, what is on display for people, what they can access, and also there's a kind of restriction on that as well, a weird sort of, wow, if I get on Canopy, I can watch all of Frederick Wiseman's films, but I might never find, um, you know, that, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a um, the the Teshigahara film that I really like, you know. So there's an expansion and also a kind of narrowing of what we get access to.
1: I've been having this lately and I, I've been having a sort of real nostalgic moment for the video store. Yeah. Which is the other thing which has entirely disappeared yeah. over the last 20 years. Yeah. And it really has been only within the last couple of decades that something that was such a part of cinema for most of my life, um, being a child of the 80s. um, You know, I grew up where every weekend you would go with the family and you would select, you would try and maximise for the amount of money you had, how many films could you get. Um, You know, all of the different deals of weeklies and new releases. And now you don't have that space. It's very different to be scrolling through a streaming service catalogue. And as much as we've been talking about how much censors has contributed to cinephile um, education, um, the video still was my cinephile education as well yeah. um, because they had the videos that, you know, good, bad or otherwise, had sat on their shelf for, you know, 20 years. And so they still had that one copy of that very random older film, Yeah. which there there is a film history that has disappeared with the streaming services.
0: And, and part of that video store thing was going up to somebody who worked there and say, Hey, I like this stuff. What could you recommend? Because, you know, you would take the risk like fine. You know, I can get four films for $10 or whatever. And I've got three that I really want to see. I've got to fill it with something else. What does the person who works there recommend? And then you would get something. Sometimes it'd be rubbish and sometimes it would be amazing. And you'd be like, Holy crap, this is incredible. And, and I think that's something you know, that is a loss because now we we tend to be ruled by algorithms that, oh, did you watch this one film from, you know, um, you know one blockbuster film? Well, the only thing you like now are blockbuster films. And then, bang, it's just going to be everything that's the same and doesn't seem to really cater for variation in our tastes, which I find a little bit frustrating. Um,
1: Thankfully, we do have um, – and this is where I think uh, services like MUBI and all oh. of that – Bits. As a curated, you know, it is a little bit like going up to that video store clerk going, Hey, can you suggest something? And it's kind of, you know, take it or leave it, the different films that they put on, um, you know, whatever you might think of their sensibility and what does get programmed, it does help to kind of challenge, channel your attention.
0: Absolutely. You know, that, they do a fantastic job, Movie. I love Movie to Bits. Just because, a little bit like Sensors, they'll say, we're doing a spotlight on this director you've never heard of. And they're from Paraguay and like, what do I know about you know Paraguayan cinema? Not much. You can tell me about that now. And, and the fact and that, that they'll also wonderful.
1: show the short films and yeah. that full kind of back catalogue, which I think is something that it's really hard to, to track down for yourself. The internet's a wonderful space for cinema, but it can also be so frustrating um, if you don't have direction.
0: Yeah. The other thing that certainly came out of the, the dossier and I think it's also worth um, thinking about is a shift towards a kind of, you would hope a level of parity, a level of gender equality in terms of the sorts of uh, stories that we're seeing the sort of productive people behind the camera. Um, you know, we do have uh, Virginia Wright Wexman's really um, terrific um, article in the dossier that's addressing that um, and and moving towards and, and another one from Claire Henry that's about trans cinema you know, this movement towards a a, a greater diversity in the sort of voices and representations that we see on screen, which I think has been really significant.
1: Absolutely. And I think if we talk about what are major shifts over the last 20 years, um, the last 10 years, uh, I think the visibility of these issues around the need for diversity um, and also I think a, a big part of that, even though it's not directly about how many women work in cinema, Um, Per se, not in the same way as, say, uh, Virginia's piece um, that talks about this changes everything. The um, Tom Donahue documentary that I have a few issues with, um, mainly a documentary about needing more women directors, that the very first thing you see once the final image leaves the screen is the name of a male director. Um, Just didn't quite match the the thematic. The ideology. No. but I think something that resonates with that has been the Me Too movement yeah. um, and the fact that it is highlighting, we were talking about independent cinema in the 90s and talking about um, what independence meant and all the rest of it. Well, something that's come out, obviously, over the last 10 years has been really shining a light on some of the darker sides of yeah. um, the production culture that um, certainly not isolated to American independent cinema in the 90s, um, but through the figure of Weinstein. Um, you know, if you wanna talk the massive shift between ninety nine and twenty nineteen yeah. is, you know, someone like Weinstein. And that and shift is like
0: literally the last eighteen months. It like has it's been. been really rapid, which is in some ways dizzying, like it's really fast and also about friggin' time. Um and, you know, that does suggest that, that you know, we start to move towards, you know, a better range of voices, more interesting and more complex stories, better representation. You know, I, I do have a sense that we're kind of in that, that weird transition period where people are, I don't know, just kind of trying things. Um, I and think, I think some of them are working and some of them aren't, but, but I feel like that next 10 years is the movement towards...
1: And I do think there's an energy around that, um, which is perhaps the energy that so fascinated me um, at the end of the 20th century that I think, I mean, it's been there in fits and starts over the last 20 years. Um, and there's certainly areas that have had vibrancy and particularly around world cinema rather than thinking purely American or even Australian cinema. Um, Australian cinema, the first decade of the, the 2000s, was um, had a few high points but we also saw a number of documentaries coming out going, what is wrong with Australian cinema? Um, And there's certainly a lot more energy, I think, in Australian filmmaking now as we're seeing people trying new things and new voices being allowed in and being um, given space to tell
0: different stories. And you do start to wonder whether, you know, national cinemas that tend to struggle a little bit and not have that much money, like Australia, like a number of other smaller nations, um, you know... The movement towards diversity, that's almost kind of opening up the small little independent window for those voices. And and that's why sort of, although I, I feel a little bit, you know, I don't know where you stand on this, Kirsten, but I, I have a little bit of a problem with the, it used to be men and now it's all women. Welcome to equality. You know, that, <laughs> the kind of, here's the female Ghostbusters, here's the female Ocean's Aid, here's oh. the... Blah, blah, blah. Like,
1: well, that's this is fun, it-
0: but... But Go and
1: see. This changes everything because it gives you the statistics of uh, we're so far away from that yeah, really being the case. Yeah. Even if a kind of you get that feeling. Um, but no, I yeah.
0: I, the idea of it kind of settling into, rather than it being here is the moment of the women's, it just becomes actually like people telling stories and yeah. and and that that diversity not being, I mean, being important, but not sort of. Here's the big banner. It's just like, like actually everybody's got a story to tell, and why don't we just tell them?
1: Yeah, and I think I think there is, um, you know, as much as I was uh, having a go at the fact that Tom Donahue was making the was the director behind a documentary pointing out the need for more female directors. Um, I think there is also a, a real um, problem with foreclosing the idea that you know women make movies for women and men make movies for men and as you say it's really just a case of you know the more diverse voices you have behind the scenes making films writing directing cinematographers all of these kind of different roles um the more interesting stories you're going to get that's right um you know so it's not a case of the moment of the women's in in cinema. Um, it's a case of well, here are some new ways of seeing, of telling stories, of um, keeping cinema really interesting and new.
0: Yeah, and the last thing, ju- just to wrap up, there is one article in the dossier which is uh, Tara Judas on the past fail politics of, of kind of the attention economy. I mean. That has become, and you know I feel very conflicted about this. Um, you know, a movement towards the way that people are responding to cinema now, which is, you know, it's this kind of social media-led response that seems to be, um, if you don't like the things that I like, you're a terrible person. If you like that film, that makes you this awful thing. This idea that that has criticism changed into something, That is, you know, either a correct answer or a wrong answer rather than a kind of complex exploration of of ideas. It
1: becomes a metric, a percentage of it's this much good or that much bad. And if you disagree with it, then you're in the wrong as opposed to having a different perspective. I think it has, I mean, I don't think film is unique in this growing binary kind of opposition. You see it in politics, you see it in a whole range of areas um, where, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong, as opposed to the wonderful grey area that a lot of cinema for me sits in. That's right. Um, I was teaching recently um, the first Stan original film called The Second, um, directed by Myra Cameron, um, produced by Leanne Tonks. Um, And this is a film that... I find really fascinating and I do personally really enjoy. But I was teaching it not to go, this is a good film. This is, you know, an example of the best of Australian cinema in 2018, 2019. I was putting it up there to go, this is a complex film that forces you to make up your own mind about it. Mm. And it's not asking you to love it or hate it. It's asking you to think. And even within that context of giving that lecture and, and trying to talk about the, that film in that way, you still have students go, I hated it or I loved it. Yeah. I'm It's going, we can move past this. And I think certainly, you know, coming back to, to what Senses does, which is it gives a space for you to not have to love or hate a film but 100%. just find it interesting.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, that's, that's sort of what I really got out, particularly out of Tara's um, piece for the dossier, is... The drive towards choosing one camp or another camp seems to me completely against what cinema does. And that kind of, it is bad for all of these reasons. This scene occurred and now this is why this is all terrible. Or this has this position and that makes it perfect. Like cinema has never been that. And and I think that, as you say, this is what censors does as opposed to maybe film Twitter, as engaging (laughs) as it may be. Yeah, it's know, hard to
1: have a really uh unless you're going to like do like one of 20 yeah um <laughs> tweets uh, you know it's hard to have a really complex yeah, reaction exactly. in
0: and film is complex and and I think that it, it is a good reminder that that it's not one thing it's it's conflicting things often and the conflict is what makes them good not what makes them bad anyway um that's 20 years of cinema that we covered in about 20 minutes so that's not bad um but by all means, uh, if you're interested in uh, all of these changes in cinema, do go and have a look at our latest issue and the, the dossier on the, 20, the decade of the 2010s. There's some really, really fascinating writing in there, um, and you might want to respond to that and let us know what you think of it on our episode thread at facebook.com slash of
1: Senses of Cinema has some exciting news. We've broken out of our digital bonds and put out a print book. 100 Years of Soviet Cinema presents an augmented version of the Senses of Cinema dossier released in 2017 to mark the centenary of the October 1917 Russian Revolution. Collecting more than 60 articles on Soviet and post-Soviet films arranged in chronological order, it represents the first collaboration between Senses of Cinema... And Leader Tapes Organisation. You can purchase the book in hardcover and paperback through the Census of Cinema website. Just go to censusofcinema.com forward slash shop. As usual, each month your hosts share with you a highlight of something we've watched over the last month. Whether it's a film, television show or some other kind of screen media that has caught our attention, we share with you the material that has resonated with us uh, so that you might be able to go out and check it out for yourselves. We've each seen a lot over the past month. So, Mark, what are your recommendations for October?
0: Well, um, I'm, I'm doing a bit of a retrospective film. A film that I, st- I remember reading the novelisation of this, like, in the... 80s, right? So I've been aware of this film for a really long time, but haven't actually seen it, which is mental. Um, so I read the book, thought, boy, this looks like it'd be a really good film. Um, and, you know, 900 years later, I finally sat down and watched Brian De Palmer's film, The Fury. Um, and, God, I mean, it is a, it's both messy and a work of absolute genius. Uh, it's a film he'd just uncarry. You know, with uh, Sissy Spacek and, you know, she's the telekinetic lady who's killing a whole bunch of people and getting covered in pig's blood. Uh, and he wanted to take another crack at that concept. And so he adapted uh, this novel. Can't remember. Who, oh, John Farris, I want to say, um, wrote the novel. Uh, and it is the story of essentially these two teenagers, one played by Andrew Stevens and the other played by Amy Irving, um, who and Amy Irving obviously was in, um, in Carrie. They are both sort of um, have these kind of special mind powers, not necessarily kind of telekinetic, but they can see into the future and they're very special kiddies. And it's a little bit like an early version of the X-Men where, you know, Andrew Stevens gets scurried away to some secret school where they're going to tap into his incredible brain. And then Amy Irving discovers that she has the powers too and she starts to attend the school. And then it is about their... Um, their relationship, although they never meet, and Andrew Stevens becomes increasingly um, disturbed by his mental powers and the treatment that he receives at the hands of these terrible doctors. Uh, and thrown into the mix is Kirk Douglas, who at that stage is well into his 60s, I think, Um but he's still playing like the action hero. He spends an awful lot of time taking off his shirt. Um, like, good for you, Kirk. You're looking awesome for a 60-year-old dude. Knock yourself knock yourself out, mate. Um, he goes trying to find the Andrew Stevens character, who is his son. So, you know, it's this whole kind of you know, mental telepathy um, narrative, which is kind of silly and yet really compelling. Um what is extraordinary extraordinary about it is how some of this stuff is staged. It's doing an awful lot of um you know people being positioned in the present and yet then yet also being transported into other rooms uh in the future or in the past. Um, Amy Irving spends a lot of time finding traces of Andrew Stevens in various buildings and almost interacting with him, despite the fact that they're in different time frames. It's a really extraordinary film. Some of it is really goofy and silly, but I was so engaged with how De Palma was staging this kind of temporal shift uh, between these two characters. I found it fascinating. If you haven't seen it, you should chase it down.
1: Sounds great.
0: It is. I'll
1: definitely. What about you? Uh, For me, I am coming right back to the very present um, with a television show that's just uh, started screening on uh, ABC in Australia and also available on iview if you're in Australia or have a wonderful VPN. Um, So this is a series that um, is directed by Rachel Perkins and stars Rachel Griffiths and Deborah Mailman. And it's got Deborah Mailman in her first lead role as an actress. And absolutely finally, great to see her taking centre stage. Um, The series is now called Total Control. Its original title, um, and the title under which it screened as part of Primetime at the Toronto Film Festival um, in September, uh, was Black Bitch. Um, not surprisingly, perhaps, um, for those of you who might not be familiar with the ABC, it's the, um, public broadcaster in Australia. Um, and so often the site, uh, for audience complaints and feedback, um, I think, I think the, uh, production company, um, was slightly ambitious to think they could get a show called (laughs) Black (laughs) Bitch up on the ABC, um, but good on them for trying. Um, not surprisingly, they had quite a big backlash. Um, you know, it's a really interesting backlash, I think, around this this idea. Um, so Rachel Perkins um, and her production company, Blackfella Films, um, they are Indigenous filmmakers. Um, and so Black Bitch isn't, a, you know, as a title of this um, show, isn't a racial slur, um, rather a, a site for rec- reclaiming that kind of name. Um but Australia, we mentioned this, uh, you know, when we talked about Adam Goods uh, Australia yes. is still struggling to come to terms with reconciliation, 100%. come to terms with um, seeing powerful Indigenous characters. And um, so there was a huge amount of tension around around that title. And so they have changed to Total Control, which makes me think of, is it the Divinals um, song um, of the same name? Uh, so I kind of like that. Um And the series is a political uh, six-episode look at uh, how outsiders um, are often sort of used by mainstream politics in Australia, but also how they can absolutely disrupt um, politics in Australia. So um, Deborah Malman plays the character uh, Alex Irving, who is an Indigenous health worker um, out in rural Queensland. After footage of her standing up to a gunman uh, goes viral, um, she's approached by the uh, Prime Minister's office uh, to come and um, act as or be placed as a senator um, uh, in a recently vacated um, Senate position uh, within the government that's seven months out from an election. So, uh, the government is a conservative, uh, government and there's tension around is Mailman's character sort of being used as a pet, um, indigenous spokesperson who can give the government credibility, um, in areas where it's lacking credibility, being helicoptered in to try and, um, help raise the profile and image of the government and then, um, as the series progresses, um, as uh, Rachel Griffiths kind of mentioned in a brief interview at um, TIFF, um, we see this uh, character who's helicoptered in um, but ultimately doesn't save the government but sort of brings it down by the the politics that she brings in by just, you know, bringing her identity and her needs and her interests and um, the voice that she has into um, the space of a, a conservative government that's that's struggling to maintain balance, and that,
0: that is scarily kind of um, connected to what actually happens in yeah. Australian politics.
1: It is, and um, you know, even though we're, we've seen we get to see um, amazing strong female characters of the interaction between uh, Griffiths and Malman in this show, um, a female prime minister, female conservative prime minister in Australia, which is certainly you know something that is still fraught, um, that idea. Um, There are lots of resonances with the exact politics that's happening here in Australia at the moment. It's handled just so wonderfully well in the series. Mm -hmm. So um, that's my recommendation.
0: That sounds like a really good recommendation. And I want to see somebody, I, I would love to read some writing from somebody like Linda Burney or no, the Paris or somebody one of the, some of our indigenous um, politicians. Their response to that that would be fascinating. Yeah. But that sounds really, really terrific. Okay, so I guess we have reached the end of another episode. Thanks for joining us again this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks to the wonderful Kirsten and in Berlin, Danny and Michelle. Um, thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who appears barely a day over twenty himself. Look at him. <laughs> So youthful. Thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman and thanks again for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast and we will speak to you again next month.